Book 11, Part 2 of Ovid's Metamorphoses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Drew Altschul. Metamorphoses by Publius Ovidius Naso. Translated by Brooks Moore. Book 11, Part 2. Great Peleus's heart was filled with happiness. Because of his great son and Thetis's dear wife, he was blessed in everything, except in killing Phocus. The Trachinian land received him guilty of his brother's blood, when he fled, banished from his native home. There Ceyx, who had the fine countenance of Lucifer his father, reigned as king, without the cost of violence or blood. Before this time his days had always given him joy and comfort, but all now was changed, for he was mourning a loved brother's death. Peleus, outwearied with his journey's length, left his fine flock of sheep and all the herds he had brought with him not far from the walls of that city, where Ceyx long had reigned. He entered with an olive branch all swathed in woolen fillets, symbol of goodwill, and with a suppliant hand disclosed his name. He told the monarch who he was, also his father's name, but he concealed his crime, giving untruthful reasons for his flight, and begged a refuge either in town or field. The king of Trachan answered with kind words, Ah, Peleus, even the lowest ranks enjoy our bounties and our hospitality, and you bring with you powers which compel attention and respect. Your name is so lustrous, and is not Jupiter your grandsire? Do not lose your time by such entreaties. Everything you may desire is yours as soon as known, and all you see is partly yours, but in how sad a state. And then he wept. When Peleus and his friends asked him the reason of his grief, he said, Perchance you deem that bird which lives on prey, which is the terror of all other birds, had always feathered wings? It was a man, and now the vigor of its courage is as great as when all well known by his man's name, Dedalion, bold in wars and strong and harsh, and not afraid to hazard violence. His father was unequaled Lucifer, star of mourning, who at dawn brings forth Aurora, and withdraws the last of all the shining stars of heaven. My brother named Dedalion, son of that great star, was fond of cruel warfare, while I cherished peace and loved the quiet of my married life. This brother, powerful in the art of war, subdued strong kings and nations, and tis he transformed from manhood, now a bird of prey, that so relentlessly pursues the doves, known as the pride of Thisbe's citizens. My brother had a daughter, Caione, so beautiful she pleased a thousand men, and when she had reached the marriageable age of twice seven years, it happened by some chance that Phoebus, the son of Maia, who returned, one from his Delphi, the other from Silene's heights, beheld this lovely maid both at the same time, and were both inflamed with passion. Phoebus waited till the night. Hermes could not endure delay, and with the magic of his wand that causes sleep, he touched the virgin's face, and instantly, as if entranced, she lay there fast asleep, and suffered violence from the ardent god. When night bespangled the wide heaven with stars, Phoebus became an aged crone, and gained the joy he had deferred until that hour. When her mature womb had completed time, Autolycus was born, a crafty son, who certainly inherited the skill of Wingfoot Mercury, his artful sire, notorious now, for every kind of theft. In fact, Autoclucus, with Mercury's craft, loved to make white of black and black of white. 
but Phoebus' child, for Cione bore twins, was named Philemon, like his sire, well known, to all men for the beauty of his song, and famous for his handling of the lyre. What benefit in life did she obtain because she pleased? Two gods and bore such twins. Was she blessed by good fortune then because she was the daughter of a valiant father, and even the grandchild of the morning star? Can glory be a curse? Often it is, and surely it was so for Cione. It was a prejudice that harmed her days, because she vaunted that she did not surpass Diana's beauty and decried her charms. The goddess, in hot anger, answered her sarcastically, If my face cannot give satisfaction, let me try my deeds. Without delay, Diana bent her bow, and from the string an arrow swiftly flew, and pierced the vaunting tongue of Cione. Her tongue was silenced, and she tried in vain to speak or make a sound, and while she tried, her life departed with the flowing blood. Embracing her, I shared her father's grief. I spoke consoling words to my dear brother. He heard them as a cliff might hear the sea, and he lamented bitterly the loss of his dear daughter, snatched away from him. Ah, when he saw her burning, he was filled with such an uncontrolled despair. He rushed four times to leap upon the blazing pyre, and after he had been four times repulsed, he to me ran beyond the speed of any human being. You would think his feet had taken wings. He left us far behind, and swift in his desire for death, he stood at last upon Parnassus' sight. Apollo pitied him, and when Dedalion leaped over the steep cliff, Apollo's power transformed him to a bird. Slender toes gave crooked claws. His former courage still remains, with strength greater than usual in birds. He changed to a fierce hawk, cruel to all. He vents his rage on other birds. Grieving himself, he is a cause of grief to all his kind. While Ceyx, the royal son of Lucifer, told these great wonders of his brother's life, Onator, who had watched the while those herds which Peleus had assigned to him, ran up with panting speed and cried out as he ran, Peleus, Peleus, I bring you dreadful news. Peleus asked him to tell what had gone wrong, and with King Ceyx he listened in suspense. I drove the weary bullocks to the shore. Onator then began, about the time when the high-burning sun in the middle course could look back on as much as might be seen remaining, and some cattle that had then bent their knees on yellow sand, and as they lay might view the expanse of water stretched beyond. Some with slow steps were wandering here and there, and others swimming, stretched their lofty necks above the waves. A temple near that sea was fair to view, although it was not adorned with gold nor marble. It was richly made of beams, and shaded with an ancient grove. A sailor, while he dried his nets upon the shore nearby, declared that aged Nereus possessed it with his Nereids, as the gods who ruled the neighboring waters. Very near it is a marsh, made by the encroaching waves all thickly covered with low willow trees. From there a loud uncanny crashing sound alarms the neighborhood. A monster wolf, all stained with mud, he breaks forth from the marsh, his thundering jaws thick covered with vile foam and clotted blood his fierce eyes flashing flames of crimson, and though he was raging both with fury and with hunger, the true cause of his fierce passions was ferocity. He never paused to sate his ravenous hunger with the first cattle that he fell upon, but mangled the whole herd as if it wore, and some of us, while we defended them, were wounded with his fatal bite and killed. The shore and nearest waves were red with blood, and marshy fens were filled with mournful sounds, the longings of our cattle. 
This delay is dangerous. We must not hesitate. We must unite before all is destroyed. Take up your arms. Arm and unite, I say, and bear our weapons for the cause of right. So spoke the countryman, and yet the loss had no effect on Peleus, though severe, for he, remembering his red crime, believed that Nerid had given him that loss, a just misfortune, as an offering to the departed focus. After this, King Saix, while he put his armor on, ordered his men to arm themselves with their best weapons, and to follow his command. But his fond wife, Halcyone, aroused by such a tumult, ran to him in haste, in such haste that her hair was still unfinished, and such as had been done she threw in wild disorder. Clinging to the neck of her loved husband, she entreated him with the words and tears to send his men along, but keep himself at home, and so to save two lives in one. But Peleus said, O queen, tis sweet and commendable in you to fear, but needless. Though you promise generous aid, my hope lies not in fighting with the beast. I must appease a goddess of the sea, and the divinity of ocean must be properly adored. A lofty tower is near there, and upon its extreme height a signal fire is burning night and day, known to the grateful ships. They all went there, and from its summit they beheld with sighs the mangled cattle scattered on the shore and saw the ravager among the herd, his blood-stained jaws and long hair dripping blood. Then Peleus stretched his arms out towards the sea, and he implored the azure Samanthe to lay aside her wrath and give him aid. But she was deaf to any word of Peleus entreating her, and would not offer aid, till Thetis, interceding on behalf of her afflicted husband, moved her will. The monster wolf persisted in his rage even when the sea-nymph bade him turn aside. His keen ferocity increased by taste of new sweet blood, till Samanthe, while she was seizing the last mangled heifer's neck, transformed him to hard marble. Every part of that ferocious monster's shape remained, but it was changed to marble-colored stone, which showed the monster was no more than a wolf, and should no longer be a cause of fear. But still, the guiding fates did not permit the banished Peleus to continue there, in his land governed by the friendly king. A wandering exile, he proceeded north into Magnesia, and was purified of guilt by King Acastus of that land. End of Book 11, Part 2